Isaiah chapter 12. We're in the book of Isaiah, and if you've been following, this is kind of a backtrack. So we've done 12 a few months ago. We're going to come back and take a look at it as we kick reach off, and then we'll pick Isaiah up again in November. There are three parts of the mission of God in Isaiah chapter 12. The first is to drink deeply of Jesus, verses 1 to 3. Look at verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. God was angry with his people. You know, some people caricature God as being this mean old man in heaven who's mad about everything. And you know what? They're actually not entirely wrong. They just know half of the story. Because God is angry about things. He is angry about sin. And Isaiah himself didn't fully understand this until he ended up in the very presence of God, and we saw that in chapter 6. And when Isaiah found himself in the presence of a thrice holy God, what did he say? The first words out of his mouth were, woe is me because I'm a sinner. And he's just affirmed in chapter 9, verse 17, that not only Isaiah, but he says, everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. As we've seen in this book, and probably a message that you're getting tired of, is that, that God does judge sin. Because he is a holy God, to be true to himself, he must judge sin wherever it exists, and that is what his anger is about. But there is hope. Look at verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. In that day. He's saying a day is coming when the people of God will be able to say that God has turned away from his anger and instead he has comforted them. Now when we jump back into Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to see this in just a few weeks, the next major section of the book. Isaiah says these words, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. God is giving comfort to his people. But notice how he does it in this section. He says, because you have received from the Lord's hand double for all their sin. Now, no, this is very important. Israel is going to find comfort in God when they themselves have paid for their sins in 70 years of captivity. Wouldn't it be amazing if there was a way for us to be comforted from God and for his anger to turn away without us having to pay any of the cost at all? What a, an outrageous thought. And yet because of the love of God for us, there is a greater that day yet to come. And this is one of the intriguing and the, the challenging things of interpreting Isaiah and really all of, all of prophecy is that there are multiple fulfillments to the things that are said. And the fulfillments ultimately end up in Christ and in his messianic kingdom. And so Isaiah, I think in chapter 12 verse 1, is looking forward to another great day when God's anger will be turned away from us. How is that going to work? As one commentator said, Motir, Isaiah chapter 6 lies in the background of 12, and Isaiah 53 lies in the future. In Isaiah 6, what happened to Isaiah when he realized that he was about to receive the anger of God? 
Instead of punishing him, God sent an angel who took a coal from the fire from the altar and burned his lips clean. And then he could stand in the presence of God. And then you fast forward to Isaiah 53 where he is going to give us in more detail what he is referring to in chapter 12, verse 1. That there is going to be someone, his name is the Messiah, who will be wounded for our transgressions, whose punishment will bring us peace, and by whose wounds we will be healed. Because you see, the Lord, even though each one of us like sheep has gone astray, the Lord is going to lay on that Lamb of God the iniquity of us all, and his anger will be turned away, and he will comfort us in his holy presence. Verse two, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This verse is an echo of Exodus 15, verse 2, the song of Moses that they sang after they were delivered from the land of Egypt. And here Isaiah foresees a second exodus when all who believe in the Lamb of God will be delivered from their slavery of sin through the death of a lamb. Now verse 2, I think, begins then to take us actually beyond the first exodus. For once they were delivered from slavery, life did not become a bed of roses for the people of Israel. Do you remember that story? What happened when they, they were delivered gloriously out of the land of Egypt, but it wasn't much longer before they found themselves in another predicament, and they needed God to help them again. Pharaoh began to chase them, and they were caught between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea, and they were afraid, they were terrified. And so they call out to God, and God once again delivers them. And you remember that great story of how God parted the Red Sea, and they walked through on dry land. And then the waters came and, and crushed Pharaoh and his army and destroyed them. And then they sang this song that Isaiah echoes in verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And what happened next? Well, it's only three days later. They're out in the desert, and they're out of water. And they're thinking, really, God? You saved me from Egypt, you, you saved us from Pharaoh, and you've brought us out here to die in the desert? We need you to save us again. And God does that. In that same chapter, Exodus 15, he leads them to the, a place called Elam where there are 12 wells of water, and they drink to their heart's content and stock up for the next leg of their journey. You see, what they didn't understand about God is that he is a God of salvation, not just was a God of salvation. It's present tense. It, it, it's something that God has done for us, it's something that God does for us, and it's something that God will do for us. That's what he means in verse two. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is not a one and done savior. He loves to keep delivering us from our problems. They had seen 10 great miracles. They had seen the parting of the Red Sea, but they needed another miracle from God and he gave it to them time after time when they run into need. God steps in and he becomes again their strength and their salvation. Isaiah picks up this imagery in verse three. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Friends, this morning there are wells, plural, of salvation. And we drink from them with great joy when we learn how to draw water out of them. Now the imagery of a well doesn't speak as powerfully to us 
as modern people as it did to people of Bible times. Most of us have probably never even looked into a well. And we have all the water we want at the turn of a tap. But I think in our quiet moments, when we're honest with God and ourselves, we know what it's like to be thirsty inside. We, we understand what David meant when he said in Psalm 63, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Ray Ortland says, Our prejudices see the world as the satisfaction of our thirst. And sometimes God feels like a dry and weary land. The truth is the opposite. We live in a burning wilderness, and God is our satisfaction. Maybe today for you, your burning wilderness is the state of our country. Maybe it's your job or your school. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's personal struggles that you're having. And maybe it's even your church that feels like a dry and weary land. My friends, the good news for us is that no matter where you are, there is water for the drinking. And it will give you great joy. We need to park on this verse for a few moments, and we're going to ask three questions. <laughs> what are the wells? What is the water? And how do we draw the water? What are the wells? They are simply God's mighty acts of salvation for every predicament we are in. Friends, our greatest need is deliverance from Egypt, from the bondage of sin. We need forgiveness more than anything else. And the central well of all of these wells is the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb. Because God has met our deepest need through the sacrifice of his son and his resurrection from the dead. But note this morning that that well then issues in many, many other wells that provide everything that we need in this life. As William Cooper penned, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. When we drink from that well of Jesus, we are cleansed. God's anger is turned away from us. We are comforted. And we have a sure hope of eternal life in heaven forever. If this was the only well we had, my friends, and if all of life after that felt like a journey through hell, we would still sing and rejoice because our future is secure because of the death of Jesus Christ. But wonder of wonders, there are other wells also throughout the land that we traverse. There are as many wells as we need based on our challenges in life. If salvation to you this morning is just a ticket to heaven, and that's no small gift, then you have an impoverished view of God as your savior. God wants to save you again and again and again. God is our salvation. God becomes our salvation. God is always there to save us. Are you thirsty today deep inside? Are you guilty? Are you lonely? Are you frustrated? Are you exhausted? Are you angry? Are you afraid? Are you addicted? Are you broken? My friends, no matter what thirst you have this morning, there's a well of God's salvation for you. God's wells springing from the cross are wells of comfort and peace 
and forgiveness. He has wells of strength and of love and of joy and of peace that he wants us to drink from and be satisfied. So secondly, if those are the wells, what is the water? The water is God himself. It's not complicated. Do you remember in John chapter 4, Jesus was talking to a woman who every day had to go to this well outside the town to get water for her needs. And Jesus said this to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now Isaiah is talking about this, but he doesn't fully understand how it's going to be fulfilled. Now Jesus says, you remember that well of salvation that I talked about back in Isaiah? Now I'm telling you, woman, that I have water to give to you that once you drink it, you will never be thirsty again. And more than that, it's not something that you'll have to go and get. It's something that will be inside of you and it will spring up within you. Now just a few weeks later, a little bit later on in John, he says this. He told the woman in private, now he tells on the last day of the feast to all the crowd in Jerusalem, he shouts out in a loud voice, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The same promise. This is the well of salvation. It is God's life himself that he gives to us. And John says, in case we missed it, he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. When we believe in Jesus, God gives us his Holy Spirit. His life comes inside of us. And what this means is this amazing truth that God is now united to man. God has come to live in our hearts. And so he imparts his life to us from the inside out. You see, God doesn't just give us strength. He doesn't just hand us salvation like an energy bar to get us through the day. God himself is our strength and our salvation. Finally, how do we draw that water? This is the question, is it not? If this well is available for us, God's life, how do we get it out of the well? If you've ever seen a deep well in the Middle East, you have to lower a bucket with a long rope and then you have to pull it up and, and then you enjoy the delicious taste of water. What is that bucket? What is that rope? How do we get that water up to our lips? Again, the answer is fairly simple. It's just like David did in Psalm 63 when he said he was thirsty in a dry and weary land. How do we draw that water? By seeing God in his sanctuary. By beholding, he says, his power and his glory by considering that his loving kindness is better than life itself. David says, when I do that, I, I begin to drink of this water and my, my soul becomes satisfied because now I'm connected to the living God. In short, we draw water from the well of God by worshiping him, by thinking about who he is, by spending time with him. And as we do that, an amazing thing happens. His life then that is already in us if we're his by the Holy Spirit begins to well up in us. And suddenly our problems that seemed so hard and complicated become much smaller because now we are focusing on the greatness of God and we can leave our problems with him. We can, as verse two says, we can trust and not be afraid anymore 
because we've taken our eyes off ourselves and we're looking at God. We're worshiping him and our soul's thirst is quenched. And I wonder this morning, friends, do you do that every single day? Do you do that multiple times a day? Yes, I am talking about having devotions, but not just reading your Bible. I'm talking about are you coming to God and spending time just with him? Early in the morning before you go to work is the best time to do that. But, but picture this now when you get up tomorrow morning to, to spend your time with God. What are you doing? You are drinking from the wells of salvation. You're, you're, you're looking at all that you have done and how wicked you were and how undeserving you were for salvation. You're looking at what Jesus paid on the cross and how he provided for your salvation and you're, you're worshiping him, you're thanking him. And, and then you do that constantly throughout the day. And one of the best ways to do that is by a simple song. And I try to take one chorus with me through the day because I can just keep sipping from that all day long as I get busy in work. I'll just sing another line of the chorus and I'll be thinking of Jesus and, and drinking him in and, and I will have joy that has not come from my circumstances. It's come from drinking the life of Jesus. My friends, this is the secret to the Christian life, to come to Jesus and to drink our fill of him. But notice this is also the, fruit, the key to any fruitful missionary life. Some of the driest people spiritually I know are missionaries because they give and give and give and they're in a dry and weary land, sometimes literally where there might not be much water. It's hard. And so missionary, if you're listening today online, let me encourage you, come to these wells, the wells of salvation, and drink deeply with joy and, and partake again of the life of God. And if you pray for missionaries, this is the single best prayer you can pray for them, that every day they would drink from the wells of salvation with joy, because then the life of Jesus will overflow as they go about their missionary tasks. Because this is what happens when we drink of Jesus. We feast on the abundance of his house. He gives us drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. Again, Ray Ortland asks, have you transitioned from being frustrated with a reluctant God who is not cooperating with your agenda to being comforted by a God who is lavishing you with grace upon grace? My friends, we need to transition from immature Christians to mature Christians who think about the grace that God lavishes on us, who, who sing like we did this morning that his goodness is running after us and we pause multiple times a day to reflect on that and to think of the greatness and the goodness of God. Now perhaps this morning you actually don't know anything of the goodness of God in your life. Maybe you're still under the wrath of God because there's nothing between your sin and him. What a great day it would be for you today to roll those burdens over on the one who paid the price for your sins. And by faith you can experience what verse one says, that God's anger will turn away from you and he will comfort you. And then you as well, along with us, can drink from the wells of salvation. We'd love to talk to you. I'll be at the front at the end of the service if you'd like to hear more about that. Well, firstly, we need to drink deeply of Jesus. And you might be wondering, what does this have to do with a missions conference? Well, that's our next point. Secondly, we need to proclaim broadly about Jesus, verses four and five. Now, many of us would have been happy, I think, if the chapter had just stopped right here at verse three. Uh, a beautiful picture of God 
taking care of all of our needs and it's just us and God and we're this happy little family. But frankly, this is the problem for some of us. We don't read our Bibles far enough. We read until we find something that we like and then we stop and, and that's okay, but that's, that's baby faith. You need to read on in the Bible. And look at what verse four says. Give thank, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. You see, verse four begins with an and. There is something that follows you enjoying the wells of salvation, and what is that? It's the giving of thanks. And it's the praise, when we experience what God has done for us, when we, when we see that he has done glorious things, verse five, our hearts overwhelm with thanks and praise to God as they should. But notice where that thanksgiving and that proclamation is to take place. Among the peoples, verse four. And I hope you've been at College Park long enough, some of you maybe haven't. Peoples means all the ethnic peoples of the world. Every single language and people group that's the vision of Isaiah, that we would proclaim thanks and praise to God among all the peoples. And then he says, in every country, all the nations of the world and all of the earth, our thanks and praise is to reverberate to the very ends of the earth. Now, I'd like to do a quick experiment. Take out your phones for a minute. And if you're already on your phone, just switch over to Google Maps. And, and just hit the button on Google Maps. Go ahead and do this. And you should see something kind of like this. Now, this is how we live our lives, right? They're, they're centered around where we're at. And you see that nice little arrow right above the blue? That, that's the button that we hit to find out where we are, right? And we love to hit that button. Now, now spread out, open it up, expand that. Are, are, you, are you working with me here if you've got your phones? Expand that, and you should eventually get to something that looks like this. Now what's happened is, is your view has expanded beyond Indiana and Indianapolis and now you're, you're in the whole world. And then what happens again? Well, we hit that, that little arrow and we circle back down just to us. Uh, but actually it's even more than this. If you then swing it around, you, you have the whole world now that is in front of you. And, and I'm afraid too many of us keep hitting that little diamond and, and, and life becomes all about us and how God is meeting our needs. And God is saying, no, it needs to be beyond that. This needs to be proclaimed broadly. Why is that? Because if we are full of the life of God, it's like a spring that will bubble over and you will want others to experience that same goodness that you're experiencing. And if you don't find in your heart a concern for others, you may be full of something, but I would suggest this morning that you are not full of God because God is concerned for others. God is concerned for all of the nations. And if that God is in you, then you will also have an interest and a concern in all the nations of the world. You see how that works? That's why John Piper says there is something deeply wrong when a person drinks at the wells of salvation for himself day in and day out and never feels an impulse to make known the deeds of God among the peoples of the earth. You see, this has been the plan of God from the very beginning. In Genesis 12, 3, when he chose Abraham and blessed him, he said, I'm going to pour out my blessing on you, but my plan is to, through you, bless all the families of the earth. You see, God is not a stingy God with his blessings. He has no favoritism. He doesn't like one people above another. He wants every single person of every single ethnicity in every single country 
to hear of the water of life that he's provided through his son Jesus. And this is going to happen. This is how convinced God is about this. I could take you through many Old Testament passages and New Testament and Acts, but the end of the story is this. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We will continue to drink from this well of salvation through all of eternity with our brothers and sisters from every nation. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them what to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is God's plan for the nations of the world and it always has been. But the question is, how is God going to fulfill that plan? William Carey in 1792 wrote a book, the title of which is probably as long as some of the books that we read today. The title reads like this, An Enquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. Now that wouldn't be a bestseller on the New York Times list today. But what he was asking was, His church taught, in fact, all churches in England and and many areas of the world taught that if it was God's plan to, to bring his saving news to all the nations, that God himself would figure it out and do it. And that we can just stay where we are. And Kerry looked at that and he had a he was a cobbler, he had a map of the world on his on his wall, and he thought, well, how's God gonna get it from England to India? Well, he figured out that God already has a method. God has a means. And the means is us, his people. And he said, God has told us what to do, and it's not there yet, so I need to be the means. I need to be the answer to my own prayer. And so he went and spent a life. He he began the, the modern era of missionary work. God has a method, and it's us. Go and make disciples of all nations. I grew up in a mission hospital in northern Pakistan, and for many years when I was a child, we had a shortage of water. There was a well about 50 feet deep, and in the rainy season, about two months of the year, we had plenty of water. The rest of the year, we had very little water, and that's not a good thing in a home, much less in a hospital. So we had prayed about this for years, and God didn't seem to answer. And then finally, a firm was hired who said, you know, we need to figure out exactly where to drill, and and then we're gonna do that. And so they used some methods, I'm not sure exactly how. They said, we think there's probably water here. They dug down 365 feet, and you know what they found? Not just water, but they found an artesian well, which means that there was so much water underground that the pressure of it forced it up. We didn't even have to to buy a pump to bring it up. And there was suddenly now so much water that not only could the hospital have all it needed, but the community could come and get free, fresh drinking water. Now, here's the thing. Jesus has done the hard work of providing the living water for every single person but they're drilling in the wrong places. The world is drilling in things like money and beauty and success and relationships and sex. The world is looking into religions like Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam because they want that water, but they come up empty. And what the world needs to know is that there is a well whose name is Jesus. And when you drill into him, you're gonna find everlasting water. And it will, amen. And it will quench your thirst now and for all of eternity. 
God wants to see wells all over the world so that everybody who's thirsty can come and drink of Jesus. Missions is a means to creating worship in the hearts of those who have never drunk from the wells of salvation, says John Piper. Now, if you were given a job, this is a map of who has access to safe drinking water in the world. If your job was to provide safe drinking water to everybody in the world, where would you go first? Yeah, you'd go to Africa. That's where the least drinking water is available. So this, this is an important thing to do. We should be concerned about this. But now, this is, real, this is physical water. What would a map of living water look like? Where have there been wells dug of living water and where are wells not available? Well, that's this map. The red parts of the world, and I show this slide every year at REACH because it needs to be burned on your minds. In the reds and in the yellow parts of the world are places of the world where there are no wells. People are, are digging and coming up empty because they've never heard about Jesus. See, missions at College Park Church, we want to address this issue. And so I just want to quick show you, I'm going to run through these slides. Here's, here's where the bulk of those people live, a map of the world by population. It's kind of a mind-bending idea. But most of these people who are without living water are in South Asia, as you can see. And we'll be hearing from a man from India next Sunday. Here's the largest least-reached people groups in the world. But I want to just for a minute now help you understand how we do missions at College Park Church and then we're going to wrap up. Because you're a part of this. We, we want to rectify this. We want to make sure there are wells all over the world. And so here's how we do it very simply. We have two what I call wheels of ministry. We have six strategic partners. Ukraine, Liberia, Lebanon, Azerbaijan, India, and Cambodia. And then we have about 50 missionaries that we send all around the world, primarily to those red areas of the world. How do those gears turn? Well, through prayer. One way we do prayer is through Barnabas teams. And this is one thing that we're going to ask you to consider to get involved in as you hear more about missions in the next two weeks. And then first Friday of every month, we pray together for missions. The wheels turn even faster then as we pour our money into these programs. About 10% or so of what you give in your regular giving goes to global missions. And in addition to that, you can designate money to missions, to specific scholarships or projects. And then we do the Christmas offering every year. We give a ton of money to missions, and you're already doing that, so thank you for that. And then the third way that we help is by going, by, by taking vision trips, by, as we saw this morning, folks taking their jobs and moving them overseas. And then finally, some of you should go and actually be a long-term missionary. This is how missions works at College Park Church. And in these next two weeks, we want to tell you more about that. Our goal at REACH is not to fire you up about missions, but it's to fire you up about God. Because if you are full of the life of God and full of praise to Him, you will be coming to us and saying, how can I take what I'm so full of to those who have never heard? And we have some ideas for how you might do that. Well, we don't have time for our last point. It's in verse 6. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is a great job, and it's a great God that we're doing it for. He is in our midst. 
He gives us all that we need to proclaim his name among the nations of the earth. And so what empowers the testimony of verses one and two and what empowers the mission of verses four to six is the rich enjoyment of verse three. And I just want to leave you with this thought this morning. Are you enjoying the wells of salvation that God has given you in Christ and then on top of that, all the other things? Because until you're full of that, you really aren't going to be involved in missions at all. Paul asked in Romans chapter 8 after talking about the amazing grace of God to us in Christ. He said, what shall we say then to these things? God, you've given me so much water, so much richness. What shall I say? And Isaac Watts, I think, said it best. He said, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Will you give your all to Jesus in these weeks because he gave his all to you? Until there are wells all over the world so that everyone who is thirsty can come and drink of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, surely your goodness is running after us. You have showed us in so many ways. But most magnificently, most significantly in the work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, we thank you again today for earning our salvation on the cross. And I pray that my life would overflow with that news and I would share it with my neighbors, that we would share it in our city, but that the river would go beyond the borders of our country and flow to the ends of the earth so that you would receive the praise that is due your name. We ask this in your name and for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen.